right. Well, good evening, everybody. How are you guys doing? Um, well, that's kind of weird. Ooh, all right. Kenny's doing good. Um, welcome to the Credo, or sorry, not Credo, uh, to the uh, Post-Christian Antidote Deep Dive Night Number 2. Um, just wanted to mention for those of you guys here in person, sorry, there's a little bit of confusion on the uh, on the communication as far as when we're starting. We've, we've both communicated that we start at 7 and at 7.15, depending on where you look, so... Sorry about that, but thanks for being here. Um, we're just going to spend a little bit of time tonight uh, diving in a bit deeper uh, in the message uh, that, that David brought this Sunday about um, <laughs> pick a fight with the darkness. Sorry, I've got to figure out which one we're talking about tonight. And so really this, this whole series, again, like I mentioned this last week, and David has set it up really well every Sunday. This whole series is, is uh, to some extent, something that came out of David's time in Ireland and something that he felt like the Lord was equipping him with uh, for the people in Ireland who are living in a post-Christian society and how do we, uh, how do we really engage and be the church in a post-Christian world. Uh, and, and there's a lot for us to learn in that as we see that whatever post-Christian means uh, the, the society around us is sliding along, uh, is getting pulled into the gravity of post-Christian. And, and we even see large portions of the church getting pulled into that. So uh, we're spending some time talking about that and then how do we engage uh, in that reality and how do we not become post-Christian. Um, and so in particular this Sunday, David shared a message talking about picking the fight with the darkness is one of the three things that he's bringing for us as, uh, as a bit of the antidote, a bit of the solution, a bit of how do we exist as the church um, in this environment. So uh, thanks for being with us, whether you're here in person or whether you're listening online. Uh, sorry if you're listening online and you missed uh, the in-person. We had to do, uh, we had a little bit of an audio issue last week, so we, we recorded a, a podcast version uh, the next day. Um, so, so if you're here in person and you want to hear us say mostly the same things, but in a slightly different way, um, you, can, you can listen to the podcast from last week. So uh, anyway, we wanted to spend a little bit of time like we did last week talking about the post-Christian part because there's so much to say about that. Um, and in particular, uh, we have Dan Riccio with us, uh, who's one of our elders and one of our resident, very smart people. Um, he's definitely probably the most scholarly person we have here at Living Streams. Uh, yeah, he's also humble enough to never say that, but if you talk with him, um, you know it's true. And for those of you listening online, David Stockton is here with us as well. Um, and and if you couldn't tell uh, online because the dreadlocks don't show up audibly as much as they do visibly, but I'm Alex Seekin. So uh, I, I wanted to start just kind of by kind of picking Dan's brain a little bit on the post-Christian side of things. Um, I mean, really just kind of general open-ended, you know, what are your thoughts on on the discussion of, of post-Christian in general. I'm sure you have more than a few things that you'd like to add to what we said last week. There's a really broad-ranging set of topics for sure. And I think David had shared an article and used some quotes from Got Questions. Um, and to me, when I saw that, it looked like the shorthand of the work of uh, a historian named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, um, but he, he's also English, um, but just, uh, you know, as a historian, he's going, look, I grew up going to the Church of England. I don't have any real faith commitments per se, but as I study ancient society and culture and all of these things, and I look out across society, I can't see anything other than that basically Western civilization is completely shaped by Christianity. Um, but the thing that we've seen is, and that's highlighted in the Got Questions uh, article, is basically people wanting to disconnect 
essentially some of the things that come from Christianity. So the, the fruits of it, they want to disconnect from the roots of it. And there's a lot that, you know, the world really did become a different place on Easter Sunday. And the claims of scripture um, that were revolutionary about, like, common humanity. Um, Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thinkers would like to claim that they're the ones that came up with it. But the time in the world that that came to be a reality uh, was really the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where you see Jesus, you know, who appears to be to the outside world a victim dying and becoming more powerful than an emperor, uh, so that 300 years later, when Constantine basically declares Christianity a legal religion, um, he's he's just declaring what's already happened, that half the Roman Empire has become Christian. Uh, and it's like, well, what is it that causes Christianity to come alive? How can there be a following so strong from a peasant in Palestine killed 2,000 years ago? And the reality is, it's not that he was a victim, it was self-giving love. Uh, and in a world where being a victim had no power, um, all of a sudden someone who appears to be giving himself on behalf of others totally changes norms. And a lot of times we can struggle with the question of how can a good God let, let horrible things happen? And there's a real place for wrestling with that. Um, but sometimes we miss the historical perspective of how different the world really is with, you know, now that it's under new management, Jesus is king. Um, and with that, how much it's become a different place. So things like virtues, virtues like forgiveness, um, weren't really part of the ancient world until Jesus, or loving your enemy, uh, or common humanity. It was, you know, who has the most power, who slaughters the most people, all of those things. Um, and so, you know, fast forward to the Enlightenment, and now it's kind of going, okay, we see the power of this, and even to more recent, um, people kind of seeing the power of victimhood and claiming victim status. Um, but if it's disconnected from self-giving love, it just becomes a shouting match. And that's a lot of what we've seen. And so if you want a pragmatic approach of, okay, equal human rights, um, if it's not rooted in the character of who God is and sourced by him, uh, it's eventually going to just devolve into a shouting match of self-interest uh, and become kind of the war zone that we've seen in culture and society. Um, so that's, I don't know, just, I could talk for a long time, but just, you know, a little, little something, a little nugget, <laughs> not, not going super deep or anything right from the get go. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's why Dan is always a lot of fun to chat with. When, when you said that earlier today, man, you just sent me, uh, like on a spiral of different thoughts, you know, in particular, what I, uh, one of the things that, that I was thinking when you said that is, you know, the, the idea of, um, of, of this, the obsession with with my victim status as a thing that brings me actually power and acclaim and and to some extent honor even though that's not a word that people in America often use for that but that is what's happening you know that inversion it's so interesting because I you know I, when I said this earlier when we were talking this afternoon uh, David laughed and 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 didn't quite roll his eyes you know but I've been diving deep in this rabbit hole of, of honor and shame as, as a lens to look at the gospel. And one of the things that is really powerful that you see, uh, it's sorry, as a lens to look at the entire Bible, one of the consistent themes in the Bible that's really powerful that certainly comes out really strong in the gospel is honor, shame, status, inversion. Um, so you see this happening all the time, this flipping, this switching, right? So you see it in, in the Old Testament, you know, where, where you have uh, 
Jacob instead of Esau getting the blessing as the firstborn son and you know, a number of things like that, uh, where David as the youngest son is a little guy, you know, and he becomes the king. Uh, but you see this in a really powerful way in the gospel. And I talked about this a little bit a couple months ago in one of my messages where I talked about honor, shame, where Jesus, you know, is uh, God who inverts his honor, shame status by becoming man. Um, and then he goes on to take on our shame and to be shamed profoundly and publicly. Um, and in doing that, you know, we talk about in the Bible, the Bible talks about, you know, him being lifted up. Um, and that statement to lift up is a statement of honor. But how was Jesus lifted up? Well, he was lifted up onto, onto a, a sinner's cross, onto a criminal's cross. Um, and it's so interesting and beautiful that this profoundly shameful thing he did actually brought him an incredible amount of honor in our eyes as he took our shame and inverted our shame status and placed us in a place of honor. And all of that is to say this, that it's so interesting and honestly uh, heart-rending or heart-wrenching, I should say, um, disappointing, saddening to see you know, okay, that's part of what's going on with this obsession with victim status. Uh, there's some legitimacy to it. There's some truth. I'm not saying we discount everything that happens in culture in that regard, but, but really it's a perversion of one of the most beautiful things that God has done, where God takes our honor and our shame status and he inverts it. Um, and, and, and I think you define the perverse part of it so well is that when Jesus does it, what did you say? It's, uh, it's, it's uh, self-giving love, right? It's self-giving love. But what our world is doing is it's all about me. It's, it's, it's taking for me. Um, and it's interesting how the most powerful things that God does, when they're perverted, they become some of the most destructive. You know, sex would be another really good example of that. Um, so anyway, that was just, that was so interesting to me to, to hear that thought. Um, I'm curious, David, if you had any, I mean, Dan said a lot of good stuff there. Any, uh, any of that spark thoughts for you? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, along the same lines, just how, how embedded all of, all of the attacks on Christianity these days are somewhat like, like embedded in the reality that they have a basis of Christianity. So in some ways, the, what they're measuring and saying, hey, Christianity, you got this wrong. It's like, well, what is your measurement? that gives you the right to say what's right or wrong. And if they will think about it, they'll go back to the Christian Judeo-Christian worldview is the very basis for them even saying that there's right and wrong in the world. So it's kind of this dizzying, um, disorienting reality where they're, they're, they're in post-Christianity, you're again using a lot of Christian language um, or, or, or even religious language um, and kind of recreating a counterfeit um, of what Christianity is in order to take down Christianity. And it's, 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 it's just, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that happening in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I think you talked about sexuality, morality, um, in, the, in that book um, that McLaughlin wrote. Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote. She was talking about how four things. There's morality, there's sexuality, there's the university and diversity. And she says basically... Right now, Christians in this culture that we're in right now are, are the ones who are doing the greatest violations in those four areas. But basically, it's those four areas that Christianity liberated from, you know, a pre-Christian you know, Christian world that was really horrific in those areas. And now Christianity, because of the, what Jesus did on, on Easter Sunday, the way he lived his life, the way he, you know, lifted up the poor and brought attention to that 
to the weak, weaker. It's it's completely flipped everything. So it's just it's so it's so bizarre how we're getting attacked by the very things that you know we made possible. Um, it's kind of like you raise your kid and then your kid's mad at you and you're just like, what what rights do you have? You're like, I made you. How do you? Why are you going to come in here and do that? So that's what it feels like a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, on that note, just, well, a bit of a side note, I would say for the people in the room and for the people listening to this, uh, you're all the kind of people who probably should know, if, you, if you're unaware of it, that on our website at livingstreams.org uh, slash library, we actually have a list of tons and tons and tons of recommended books. And one of the things you can do there is you can actually filter by the sermon series and see some of the, see any book that gets mentioned from the pulpit uh, but also uh, see any book that is oftentimes books that maybe we don't mention from the pulpit that are books that we were reading to kind of fuel that and to do a little extra study. So David was re- mentioning Rebecca McLaughlin and her book, uh, Confronting Christianity. That's one of the books that you would see on there for this series, as well as a number of other ones, because that book is pretty killer. Um, so, David, you kind of preempted the question I had a little bit and, and, and hit it a, a bit already, but uh, what are some of the things that you guys see uh, that uh, that the post-Christian society that we have is 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 wanting to extricate uh, from the precondition of Christianity and hold on to as they discard Christianity that that you think is untenable without uh, the worldview of Christianity ultimately. I I think <clears throat> I was kind of saying like if you try and do pragmatic stuff of this seems to work the best, but it's not connected to a relationship with God, then it's in vain. And it's um, because, you know, he is the life-giving source for us. And so if we try and do the counterfeit of that, and I'm going to generate, and I'm going to create, and I'm going to be the one who's able to do all of these things, uh, it ultimately ends in failure. And, you know, and you see things like, you know, education's a good thing, but the Holocaust came from probably the most educated society in the history of the world. And so it really has to be rooted in who God is. And even some of the challenge of the Enlightenment, um, Reformation, post-Reformation, was kind of that search for reason is the answer to everything. Like we can use reason and logic to solve everything. And if we can find the principles that are behind everything, we can see how the world governs and runs. And it's looking for that free-floating reason and uh, insight to try and govern life by, but it's not just a free-floating principle uh, or logic or reason. It's God. It's God who's the source, and if you don't connect to him, you will always fall short because it's, you know, even the search for truth, like what's behind everything, what's the true principle that runs the world? Well, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person, and it's, it really comes to that personal connection to a God who created you and loves you. Um, and if all you do is extract principles from that uh, without connection to that God, it's, it's going to end not well. Yeah, I know, I know you already kind of kind of hit that one a little. I, I would add, I think, to that list too. Um, you know, it's interesting, like the, the scientific method, and, and you hear this a lot, especially in conversations on apologetics. Scientific method, ironically, makes no sense without the precondition of the Christian worldview. Right? It's it's the assumption that there was an intelligent, good, organized God that created everything. 
that leads us to believe that things like mathematics might exist. That if we continue to dig deeper, that everything will continue to make sense. When you have a worldview uh, like paganism or Hinduism or uh, or even a, a secular worldview that that you know d decides that there is no God, um, the natural conclusion to that is that well, there there won't be any order to it. You know, if if the gods are just a bunch of angry human-like people, why would they create anything orderly? If there is no God, why would anything orderly exist? But in, in a worldview where we say, no, actually, we, there, there was a God, a single God who made everything, you would expect a consistency, a logic, a reason to it. And you even hear that in, in John 1, right, when he alludes to it, and he says, in the beginning was, was the Word, was the logos, was the reason, was the logic. Um, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The reason was God. The, the logic was with God, was God you know. Um, and so I think that's one of the really powerful things that it's like, it's so interesting how the, the world, how the post-Christian parts of our society have claimed the scientific method and said, this is ours. Uh, but the reality is, is what, what leg do you have to stand on for that? Um, and another thing I was saying that uh, I was thinking uh, when we were talking about this earlier um, is it's not just, hey, we, that was our idea and you stole it. I think sometimes that's what it can sound like when we, when we have this conversation. Like, hey, wait, 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 no. Christianity thought of that first. It's not just that. It's that when you look at these things, um, things like the scientific method, things like common humanity, things like equality, justice, you know, mercy, kindness, honor, shame, inversions, you know, all these kinds of things, when you, when you look at those things, the, um, oh, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, oh yeah, uh, it, like I was saying, it's, it's not just, oh, we're, you know, you, you, took, you took our to our toy, we came up with that first. It's the fact that when you look at them, there seems to be a goodness and a beauty to them, right? There's a functionality. It works in the world. Like if you apply it to the way you live life, uh, it, it seems to actually make things better. And, and it's on the face of it, it. These are beautiful items, beautiful thought processes, beautiful tools. And, and goodness and beauty does not necessarily 100% mean that, yeah, that's true. But they are strong circumstantial evidence that that's probably true. Right? And so when you build something on a solid foundation, it tends to be solid. If you build something on a shaky foundation, it's shaky, right? And so when we have these, all of these different things that, that only come out of the, the Christian worldview, uh, we have some pretty reasonable circumstantial evidence that the Christian worldview might actually be true because the things it produces are good and they're beautiful. Um, yeah, I think there's two pictures that came into mind as trying to kind of bring together all that we're saying. And one is, you know, you picture just a huge dam where there's all this water being held there. And um, I'm thinking of the fugitive when he jumps off the building there. But you might be thinking of the Hoover Dam, whatever dam you want to be thinking about. Um, but, it, you know, the big cement, you know, like dam that's holding all the water back. And then there's the little river that comes out the bottom. And, and if you pictured that dam as being, you know, built by blocks, then then, you know, I feel like the post-Christian mindset or, or, or what is happening is they're going, hey, you know, we got this. You know, this, this dam is so big. It's so awesome. It's holding all that back. Um, all, we, we really, all we want to do is just take out a few blocks. Just, we, we just don't like these few things. But they don't realize that the things that they're taking out are the ones at the bottom that are holding everything else up. So, you take, you know, you know, take the sexual ethic of the Judeo-Christian worldview of Jesus out, and you take Jesus himself out, and you take 
sacrificial love out. You just, just a few of these things. We're not, we're not messing with the whole thing. We're just, you know, we don't like these things. And so you take a few of those out and you lose the whole thing. And that's, that's, that's both the warning and the reality of, of what post-Christianity is leading us to. And, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, I, I want Christianity to be okay. I, well, I'm saying that because of, you know, societies that have come before us and done the exact same thing. Um, it's, it's proven in history. So that's one, one analogy. And then the other one would be, I've been thinking about Jesus told the parable of, of the, the, the vineyard, and then he, you know, got some hired hands for the vineyard, and they were taking care of the vineyard. And, and then at one point, you know, I think he sent a servant to the vineyard, and they killed the servant. He sent another servant. They killed the servant. And he's like, well, I don't think they quite understand how, how important I am to this vineyard and how important this vineyard is to me. And so then he sent his own son, and they killed him as well. And Jesus is like, what do you think the master is going to do at this point? Like, the mindset of humanity is we get to these points often, with these cycles of history, we get to these points where we just, the cry of our heart is, we got this. You know, we don't, we don't need that master. We don't need whatever he is. We don't need whatever he brings. And if we just kill the son, then the whole thing is going to be ours. And, and in some ways, that's what post-Christianity is. It's, is if we can just get rid of that, whatever that is, then the whole thing is ours. And what, 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 it's foolishness. I mean, that's basically what Jesus is saying in the parable is these, these people work in the vineyard. They have no right. They have no ownership. They wouldn't know how to do it. And, and the master is not going to stand by and allow that to happen as well. So that, I don't know, those are just a couple of things as you guys were talking. That's a little bit of the, the, the game that's being played right now, it feels like, in a post-Christian society. That's so helpful. Like, I, I think even specifically, you know, with, you, with your damn analogy, right, it's like... You can't say that. <laughs> what? I, I think it's helpful. Oh, with your damn... An- I didn't even hear it. <laughs> with your damn analogy, man. Oh, great. Have, now I he's going to say that nonstop. Guy, and he loves those jokes. Uh, but right, like, like... Dan, you were saying the Dan analogy? The Dan analogy. Oh, that's yeah, what yeah, you were yeah, saying. Yeah, okay, we I get it. But... With your damn analogy, um, <laughs> you know, you, you pull that, you pull those block out, blocks out. And like one specific example of that, right, would be, and you mentioned it, you know, sexuality. It's like 60 years ago in our society, we pulled covenant out of, of, of the dam that's holding back sexuality, that's bringing form to it, you know. And we've spent the last 60 years chasing the wind on trying to figure out how do we make sex a good thing? How do we make it a functional thing? And, the, and it's to the point where, you know, it's, people joke about it. There's memes, you know, it's like, like, oh, how sexy is it to, you know, have a, to sign a contract of consent, you know, between two college students. You know, that's a joke, but it's also a reality. It's like, well, you're back to signing contracts now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but these contracts are lame. They don't produce life. They're weird. They, they have no place in, in sexual intimacy. It's, it's awkward and unnatural. And, and, and they're not going to solve anything. Um, you know, they're just going to be more and more and more problems down the line. All you got to do is, is, is put the right block back in place, you know, of, well, here we have a mutually submitting covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and the results will be literal life. Uh, and outside of that, uh, not so much. Um, but, yeah, um, well, let's, let's move on a little bit to specifically talking about David's message this week, right? The, uh, the encouragement, the exhortation, the, 
uh, the piece of the antidote was pick a fight with the darkness. Um, there's two words in there that probably deserve a little bit of unpacking, fight and darkness. Uh, what do we mean? What do you mean, David, um, when we say pick a fight with the darkness? Well, I think, I mean, to go to back to that analogy of a dam, <laughs> that's another way to say it. Dam analogy. Um, I think I think part of the challenge is is a denial of evil. So the, the dam's holding something back that will bring great des- destruction. And I think that's that's a part of what what is happening is is we can, especially I feel like in in the U.S. with all the resource and insulation in some ways that we do have, we can we can create little worlds where we don't interact or encounter the horrors that are that exist today and have throughout history um and you know when they when they do show up too close to our neighborhoods in the area of homeless or you know drug addiction or whatever it might be or they crash actually into our our own family um i think then all of a sudden it's this big wake-up call that that there really is evil out there and so the way of god actually holds back evil and, and then if you realize, if you, think, if you think, oh, look, there's this huge dam, there's nothing on the other side, then, then the dam doesn't, doesn't mean that much. And so I feel like there's some of that going on. So when, when we say picking a fight with the darkness, that's a very Christian, Jesus thing to say, that there is actually evil in the world. And even you know, on Sunday, I was talking about the devil. Jesus said the devil, Jesus talked about the devil, which immediately in most of society today, as soon as you start talking about the devil, it's like, oh, this guy's an idiot, he's a fanatic, he doesn't know anything, but Jesus talked about the devil wanting to steal, kill, and destroy, and, and then, you know, his disciple John picked up on that and said the spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world, and so that's, when, when we say darkness, that's what I'm talking about, and what the, the phrase that I've been using is the post-Christian winds are blowing um, in, in, our, in our society these days, and and so we have a choice. What are we going to do? Are we going to pretend it's not there? Are we going to pretend it's not that bad? Are we going to say, hey, that's for other people to deal with? Or are we going to realize that it's, we are, we're in the fight? Like the fight is, is already here. I think you actually said it earlier. Like if, to be a Christian is to be in the fight. So I don't know if you want to add on to that. Well, I think just even one of the things David had talked about and said in his message, like to be clear about what he means by fight. Um, and I think one way of talking about it is like in Paul with Second Corinthians 10.4 saying, for our weapons of warfare are not fleshly. We don't fight like the world fights, but they're actually powerful unto God for the tearing down of strongholds um, that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And even coming out of the Hosea series, the phrase knowledge of God appearing in Hosea, there is no knowledge of God in the land. And it's like what we're being called to is use our weapons of warfare. They're not humanly, they're not fleshly, but they're powerful to the tearing down of mindsets that exalt itself, that want to cast out any understanding, knowledge, commitment, um, relationship with God. And so um, what are those? And it's like you look at what Jesus did. Um, You've heard it said, uh, you know, love your friends, hate your enemies. But I say to you, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think it's a great object lesson of who was Paul that was, you know, Saul persecuting the church. And what, what did probably the church do? They probably listened to Jesus and prayed for the one persecuting them so that 
you see this incredible, you know, call it a conversion, happen in the, the, this incredible change in Paul's life and going from one who's persecuting and having Christians killed to being willing to lay down his life for the faith. And that's an example of these aren't carnal, they're not fleshly weapons, they're powerful, following the words of Jesus. What do we do with people who persecute us? We pray for them. And I remember being 19, 20 years old, working in a valet booth, reading Richard Wormbrandt, who was persecuted for being a Christian pastor in Romania uh, under communist rule. And as I'm reading through his book and telling the story of how he's in prison for 14 years and all of those things, and he gets to a point and he says, one of the things that's clear is the West has no love for communists. And I kind of go, right on, yes, we don't love communists. And then his next line was, and that's a problem. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to hate my enemy. I'm supposed to love my enemy and pray for those who persecute me. And there's a lot going on in society that wants to stir people up to fight the other side, and it's the people on the other side. But that's not what we're called to as followers of Jesus. We're not engaging flesh and blood, even though it takes flesh and blood form against us. We're engaging the spiritual forces of darkness behind it. And it's not like you can just take apart evil and go, here's all the constituent parts and here's how evil works you kind of describe its effect. And hey, what do we see coming through into culture? Things that want to cast out the knowledge of God. What are we called to do? We're called to pray. We're called to tear down the arguments that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And if we engage that way, we're actually doing what Jesus, you know, uh, was inviting us into, the, mes the message, the ministry of reconciliation. And even, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 goes on and on and on about be reconciled to God, be reconciled to others. And how can we be reconciled to others if we have no love for them? And so, you know, part of the post-Christian, the trap in a post-Christian culture would be to hate the other side. And it's we're called to love and win and, you know, don't be overcome by good, but overcome uh, don't, become, <laughs> don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good that David was saying in his sermon. And it's like, you know, we're, we're fighting in a different way. Um, it's the forces behind in recognizing that, you know, we're called to love people that are coming from a worldview that's completely different. Yeah, I was, I was thinking along those lines, you know, when you, when you say pick a fight with the enemy, there's, it's a proactive, not a reactive. And, and I feel like there's a little bit of a call from the, from the Spirit to the church today. Hey, you've been a little too reactive and it's not your role in society to be reactive. You're, you're supposed to be proactive. And, and, I, and so the church in America, I think that's one of the causes. Hey, you know, the comfort, the apathy, the contentment, whatever these type of things has, has led us to a position of being kind of re reactive. And God's calling us to say, hey, now's the time for being proactive. So picking a fight. Um, the word fight, I mean, I... I talked with people, you know, about this message even before preaching it, and, and some people just hate that word, and because what it, as soon as I say pick a fight with the enemy, their mind in America right now is going to politics. I mean, that's immediately where their mind goes, you know, like, okay, and, and it's funny because it seems like, trying to assess this, doing my own little statistical analysis in my brain right now. Because um, I don't want to over, overstate something. I was going to say it seems like one side of the aisle wants to fight and the other side of the aisle doesn't want to fight. 
That's not true at all. What it seems like is, is the people who have mercy hearts, hearts that are very compassionate, merciful, they have a real problem with the way Christians are talking about fighting, whether whatever side of the aisle they might be on. And, and so that's, that's, a, that was, that's, a, that's a real good check for me, I think, to be careful with that word. Um, because how we fight is, is really important, as, as Dan was alluding to. And we've got verses galore for that. I mean, look at Jesus. How did he fight? Well, wasn't a ton of politics going on there. Wasn't a ton of violence and physical, you know, action. Making some people so mad right now, maybe. But um, Jesus, that's, the first, that's how we do everything. That's how we fight. Just like Jesus. He was, he was a darkness fighter galore. He was picking a fight with all kinds of darkness. So Jesus is the example, 100%. Um, and there's a lot more conversation to do because Jesus didn't live in the 21st century and Jesus, you know, doesn't have our weaknesses and strengths exactly the same, all those type of things. I get that. But, um, but, but the fight, but to deny that we're in a fight is what really is the problem, right? That, that we are in a fight. The, 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 the evil that the dam of Christ and his church is holding back is real, and that evil is horrible, and we get little splashes of it when we look at, you know, sex trafficking, when we look at homelessness, when we look at suicide rates, when we look at all these things. Like, we, we can see the evil is there when we look at Holocaust and, you know, many other things like it. But, but, there's, but there's, there's, there's a lot of evil that is being held back. Um, and, and I think, so we are in a fight, and we have to fight, and we have to be proactive as, as Christians, um, no matter what culture we might be in at all. And then ultimately, I think that's what, what I love about what Dan was saying is when it comes to the word enemy, um, I, didn't, I didn't use the word enemy because pick a fight with the enemy, right? That would make sense. And I said, no, not enemy, not enemy. Pick a fight with the darkness because it's the darkness behind the people that is really the problem. The people aren't the problem. The people are God's people. The people are the ones that Jesus wants us to love and serve and, and come aside. Now, some of those people, who they make me mad, 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 mad because of the darkness that they're not just believing, but they're, you know, spouting or sprouting. Um, but in, in the end, Jesus taught us to love and pray for our enemies. And so really what we're trying to pick a fight with is the darkness. I'd say one way to even reframe it a little bit for me um, comes from my third grade teacher that just taught, you know, if someone makes you carry a pack one mile, carry it two. She went to great lengths of explaining, like, okay, a Roman soldier could enlist anyone and be like, you have to carry my pack for a mile. Um, and it's like, in that situation, you see someone oppressing someone else, and it's like, how do we do liberation in that? And you look at what Jesus is saying, and he's going, carry it too. He's not going to change the circumstance. He's going to change the person inside of the circumstance. They're still the slave, supposedly, but now he's turned them from being a slave into, I'm going to do this for you. And now this person is liberated and still carrying a pack. And it's like, it's kind of off the charts for us in terms of like, we want to be like, if we can get power back and put the pack back where it belongs, then we're good. And here's Jesus coming along going, no, carry the pack two miles. We're going to do freedom differently. And it's just as a reframe, like, what does that mean in everyday life? It's challenging. Like, we have to work that out. 
situation by situation, but just as a, a short little statement of someone asks you to carry a pack one mile, carry it too, and I can make you liberated in a slavery setting. I think, sorry, one more thing, to throw, and you, you mentioned this earlier, but um, I want to talk about politics <laughs> again, because I, I want to so bad. But um, this has been interesting, because there is that debate. It's like, how, what should Christians do in regards to politics? And, and Jesus is definitely our example. And, but what I've, what I've been unpacking is, you know, in our world today, you know, I'm trying to figure out when does the way of Jesus that we're following and we're committed to, when does it intersect with politics and when does it not? And I think that in, in the last, you know, since 2020, basically, there's been times where Christians have, 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 have intersected with politics in a way that the way of Jesus doesn't at all. And then there's times where Christians have not intersected with politics when the way of Jesus does intersect with politics. I think it's been a little bit of a kind of clumsy, um, you know, uncoordinated uh, way that, that Christians in this nation have been navigating those things. And so that's one of the things I'm hoping that we'll really get good at. I mean, I, the Spirit is not confusing. The Spirit knows what to do. And the way of Jesus is set before us. But um, the reason I'm saying that is because sometimes the way of Jesus really does intersect politics, and, and we, do, we do engage in that. But as long as it's Jesus is there, because I don't want to be getting involved in things when Jesus wasn't there, because there's dark, there is darkness in politics definitely these days, and so we, we have to acknowledge that and pick a fight with that whenever Jesus is leading us that way too. And I think one of the things that's key there, right, is like obviously like the Lord affects and is the foundation for every facet of our life, which would include all of politics. But, but the thing is, is, you know, issue for issue, what you're saying, but also, like, it, it affects not just who we vote for, but how we engage. You know, so, for example, like a year ago, just before the Supreme Court leak on the, on the, the case that undid Roe v. Wade, you know, we talked a little about abortion on a Sunday morning, and it's like the thing when we talk about abortion is you can listen to the political talking heads on the left and on the right, and you can see them screaming past each other. Um, and you can see the people on the right who, who I would agree with their stance you know, on, on, on pro-life pretty, pretty strongly. But you can see them screaming about the issue, talking past the reality that there are women who have had abortions that are not being won over by this conversation. They're being shamed. They're being outcast. They're not. They're not hearing the gospel. They're not hearing the freedom that Jesus brings. They're not healing. Uh, they're, they're not hearing the call to repentance and the call to move forward and the call to grace and mercy. You know, it's like that should really change the way we have a discussion. If you're talking about these things in the same voice, in the same tone, in the same manner as the people who are getting paid to be angry, um, we might we might find ourselves teaming up with the darkness, even though we're voting against it. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important thing. And, and I think there's something fundamental. Like, I think the question is, what do we mean when we say pick a fight with the darkness? To understand that is vital. Uh, you know, I, I recently read uh, Nancy Piercy's newest book, uh, The Toxic War and Masculinity, which if you don't know, anything Nancy Piercy has ever written is dense, but so worth every every page. Um, but she was talking in particular 
she was talking about domestic abuse and, and something really interesting, some studies that have dug a little bit deeper. One of the studies maybe you've heard in the past that's really disappointing is that like, oh, domestic abuse seems to be the same uh, with Christians as it is with, with non-Christians. Uh, and that's really disappointing to hear that. But when you zoom in a little closer, you see something so interesting and so telling that is changing the way I think about a lot of things, which is that if you, if you zoom in and you look at nominal Christian men versus men who, uh, who attend regularly, who are really engaged in church, those nominal Christian men who come every once in a while, rarely, who are kind of a Christian, you know, um, they are actually by far the most physically abusive group of men in the country. And the men who are, who are sincerely attending church, who are sincere, serious about their relationship with Jesus, they are by, by far the least abusive group of men in the entire country, significantly. So much so that those two cancel themselves out when you, when you mix them together. Um, and the difference there has nothing to do, it doesn't matter if they're egalitarian or, or complementarian. What matters is, are they, are they really a disciple? Um, and I think that's so interesting. The way Nancy Piercy put it is, it is it's almost like these nominal men are around church enough to hear the conversation about headship, but not enough to, to really absorb what it means to lay down your life for your wife, to really know what it is to follow Jesus. And that's dangerous, to hear a little bit of the truth without really wrapping your mind and your heart around it is, is really unhealthy. And I think this is a similar, similar scenario. Why are we nervous? Why are there people you talk to who are nervous about the word fight? Because to hear the conversation of pick a fight with a darkness without really knowing how Jesus fought the darkness means that you will probably unknowingly partner with the darkness. Um, and so it's so important, I think, that, that we take that really seriously and that, you know, um, that we really wrap our minds and our hearts around how does Jesus fight. There, there's a piece of... I mean, this really happens a lot in European history in terms of um, Christianity being co-opted for power and leadership, uh, where, you know, Reformation, post-Reformation, uh, you see it, um, Henry VIII, his eight wives, or six wives, his first wife, he's Catholic, he divorces her, Anglican Church starts, he's got a daughter that's raised Catholic, um, you know, that's uh, Mary, later becomes Bloody Mary. Uh, and then his second daughter, who's raised Protestant, is Elizabeth. And it's something that it's family conflict and divorce and remarriage and messes. Um, but it becomes family con conflict writ large, where you have back and forth of killing of Catholics and Protestants in the name of God, um, based on who's in power, and treating that like it's fighting the darkness, to the point where, I mean, even in Northern Ireland, you know, the split between Catholics and Protestants is really just the outworking of a family conflict that, you know, becomes societal. Um, and even, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, okay, this king's in power now, or this queen, this monarch, and this half of the population gets persecuted. Now it's the other monarch and it flips the other way to the point that during the French Revolution, that era, the, the, one of the cries becomes, we won't be free until um, the last king is strangled by the guts of the last priest. Um, and, and then they try and reinvent the world themselves and realize it's just infinite regress. And without true discipleship and following of God and using instead of co-opting power for political purposes, but using power to serve others around you, uh, things go wrong. And, and that is a lot of the reaction in Europe is because of the conflict that was done in the name of God. And that's not a direction we want to go. 
Um, one of the many, many, many things that we mean by pick a fight with the darkness is, is picking a fight with, with the demonic, with the spiritual forces that are anti-Christ. Um, and so we had a, this might feel like a little bit of a left turn, but it's obviously at the same time very much squarely within the conversation we're having. Uh, so just, uh, could you guys just speak a little bit to the, uh, I, th- I think there's something really valuable about hearing some firsthand stories, you know, like what is the interaction that you guys have had or people that you've known really personally, really closely that you trust? Uh, what have those interactions with, with the forces of evil, the spiritual forces of evil uh, and the demonic, what, what have those been like? Well, that, that is one of the things in the message. I, you know, Jesus was very clear with his disciples very early on. Seems way too early in some ways, but it's Jesus, so it wasn't. And then very clear at the end that one of the things he wanted them to do was cast out demons. And, um, I mean, I think in my little boy mind, when I was first hearing those stories, just like, whoa, they just got demon-possessed people everywhere walking around? I, I was having trouble figuring that out. But, but at the same time, it was awesome to know that the name of Jesus could cast those demons out. Um, and I'd had, I think, maybe a few encounters with demon or some sort of evil force. Um, I, I had a roommate one time who told me in the morning that, that the night before, he, he was feeling pinned to the bed by some, like some force of darkness was like holding him down to the bed and, and like covering his mouth. And as he was trying to say the name of Jesus, he was, he was a Christian, uh, he couldn't get the word out. And it just, you know, went on for a while where he was just continued to try and try. And he finally got the name Jesus out. And immediately, you know, like all of the, the whatever was holding him down was gone. And, and, uh, and then he said he just got up and started walking around the house praying and all of that. And I was listening to him tell that, and I thought, I want you to move out. I was like, no. I, I mean, there was a little bit of that thought, but that's not what I actually said for him to do. But, um, but it, was, <laughs> it was just kind of like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. And I mean, I think I'd probably, as a kid, there was a time or two, and I don't know if it was just me being scared or if there actually, you know, you just, it was like you felt there was some sort of heaviness in the room um, so that was, that was all the real interactions I had. And then, and then in Belize, when we, my wife and I were living there with our one-year-old daughter, um, it's just a, a village of about, you know, maybe a few hundred people. And, and I was asleep in the morning and the sun had come up. And I hear this, this voice outside our, our door saying, um, Pastor David, Pastor David. <laughs> and uh, I figured that was me. So I... I got up and, and I kind of like stretched and I looked out, I was like, what's going on? And there was a guy down there and he had, he had a bike for him and a bike for me. And, and he said, they need you on the other side of the village. So I, I go get on the bike, we race down there and I, I go up and again, I'm, I'm still a little groggy. We go up these stairs um, to, this, to this house and we walk inside and there was a guy I knew, they called him Brother Hugh, he was, a, he was an older guy in the church and a real solid guy. And, and there was a mom and her daughter sitting on the couch, and they were very distraught. And he was reading Bible verses about demons. And, and, and I just sat there and listened, and, and then he said a prayer, and, and then, and then he, he walked out, so I, I walked out. And as we were going down the stairs, he said, do you have any experience in this type of thing? And I was like, waking up or... 
You know, like what I, what I didn't know, I don't know what he was alluding to, but I was thinking, okay, he was just reading verses about demons, so maybe he's talking about that. And so he walked me over, and there was a young man named Daniel who I'd seen a few times, and he was sitting in a chair with a couple guys um, sitting on the ground next to him, and he was just like writhing. You know, he was, all of his muscles were flexed, and he was just like grunting and kind of growling, and he was just rocking back and forth, back and forth. And, and Brother Hugh looks at me and he's like, you know, like, you're on. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I don't, I don't, know, what hap- I don't know what happened in that moment. Um, it, was, it was so interesting. I, I, don't, I, I don't know why I, d- I did anything in some ways. I, I literally don't. I'm a little confused. But in my mind, it was like, take his hand really tight and then just start speaking into his ear that Jesus is the one that can save you. So I did. I took his hand, and I was like, I know some Bible verses where guys getting thrashed. So I was like, I'm going to squeeze tight, you know. And he squeezed tight, and I was like, oh, okay. And it, but it was just tight. It wasn't like breaking my hand or anything. And I got right next to his ear, and I was like, Daniel, you got to call out to Jesus. you got to say the name of Jesus. you got to say, Jesus, save me. And I literally was just kind of rocking up and down with him, and I was saying, say, Jesus, save me. Jesus saved me, and I was just preaching the gospel to him, telling him Jesus is the one that can save. There's only one that can save. And, and you could see him at some point. He was, he was, like, trying to speak, and it was the same thing. And now I was thinking back to my friend. I was like, I'm glad he told me about that story because now I'm like, hey, you can break through. you got to break through. And, and it was very interesting because he finally started saying, Jesus saved me, Jesus saved me, Jesus saved me. And it was very faint and weak at first, and it got stronger and stronger. And this was probably about a 10-minute, you know, moment where all of a sudden he went completely limp, just like totally collapsed. And, and again, I have no idea why I thought to, to ask this, except for maybe the spirit. Um, but I said to him, I said, Daniel, what do you see? His eyes were closed. I said, Daniel, what do you see? And he said, um, one of them left. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I, literally, I mean, sorry, I don't know. That's that's what I thought. I should have been more superhuman spiritual or something. I don't know. But I was like, oh, crap. And I said, well, how many are there? <laughs> and he said, there's one more. And I was like, oh, that's not too bad. Um, and so it was funny. I, I, he said, there's one more. And I was like, okay, you got to, you know, we got to call out to Jesus. And as soon as he tried to start calling, it was just he clenched up again. And he started rocking again. And we did the same thing. You know, maybe seven minutes this time or something, basically the same process. And then he went limp. I said, now what do you say? And I see, and he said, he said, they're both gone, but they said they're coming for the baby. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that, and he said, but there's a man in white and he's telling me to go to the church. And I was like, man in white, that's my guy. That is my guy. We're going with him. And so me and my friend, we got up and we, and we walked, we walked him down to the church and, and it was, and this is no joke. Um, we, were, we were just kind of walking by his side. He was able to walk. It was hard at first, but he was able to walk. And we got to the church, and we started walking up the steps. And right at the door of the church, he literally just flew, just flung back as he went to step into the church. And so we, we kind of caught him, and we were like, that's weird. And we looked at each other, and we just put every football shoulder move we could think of, and we just went boom and just, like, slammed him into the church. Um, and he went into the church, and he stayed there, and... It was very interesting, and the whole baby thing was his, his girlfriend was the other, other lady, and she was pregnant, um, which no one had known. Um, but anyway, so that, and then he said that the man in white told him to read this certain verse, 
at midnight. And so I was, again, we're saying, okay. So we just put on worship music. We had someone stay with him the whole day. And at midnight, he read the verse and, and went home. And it was the, the only, I mean, I don't know a lot about what happened with Daniel after that. It was kind of interesting because we would see each other from time to time because he was actually from the city. And we'd see each other and I'd be like, hey, man. <laughs> and he'd be like, hey, is everything good? And he's like, and he would smile and he'd say, everything's good. Everything's good. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I would walk on. But it was very interesting interaction since then. But that, that, was, that was a time where, I mean, obviously, I, I, it wasn't like a fun thing or like, oh, I'm so glad that happened. I, I don't really want, like, it's not something I, I want to see happen. But it was also something that was very, I mean, even for everyone in the village that was watching, it was, it was pretty clear that Jesus is Lord. I think just one thing for anybody who doesn't know David really well, uh, I wouldn't call David like a hyper-skeptical person, but David is not a, a storyteller. Well, he's a storyteller, but he's not a story maker up. Or David has a very weird, intense level of integrity to the extent where it's kind of annoying sometimes if you're really good buddies with him. You're like, come on, man. Uh, David doesn't just, uh, There's there's no... There's no... No, that happened, man. Yeah. That really, really happened. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think it's worth, worth hearing that, you know, worth someone who... I mean, I've known David since I was in se seventh grade, um, and he's not someone who just kind of makes things up. He's not someone who, you know, amplifies things to make the story sound better. He's good at telling stories, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't change things to, to make it sound better, so it's worth saying. Dan, what about you? What have those interactions been? So, <clears throat> I know a lot of secondhand stories, but since this is not about secondhand stories. Um, there was someone that kind of got referred to me, it's probably about 10 or 11 years ago, that his life had just gotten turned upside down because of the struggles he had. And he was kind of going, I want to faithfully follow Jesus, whatever it takes now. And so was going forward in, in that. And I'd met with him a couple of times. And then um, he called me and was like describing basically demonic dreams related to some of his struggles and things like that. And when I heard that, it was kind of like, oh, we should meet and pray together. Because, you know, and in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, there's some deliverance that needs to happen, but I'm not thinking I'm going to go cast a demon out or something like that. So I said, hey, why don't we go down to the prayer garden off of 40th Street? Um, there's some things we can pray in person that I think would be meaningful. And um, it's long enough ago, I don't even remember specifically what I was praying, but as I was praying, um, I didn't tell him I'm praying for deliverance for you or anything like that, but he started going, oh, something's coming up and like started physically sort of, you know, going through certain motions and things like that. And then he's like, I feel different. And, um, and it wasn't someone that would like I was in relationship with. He had just been referred to me and I've met with him a handful more times and kind of would see him from time to time and saw like the fruit of like, okay, this was a little thing he needed along the way. He continued to faithfully pursue Jesus for a lot of healing and a lot of restoration, and really a lot of fruit was from him pursuing Jesus or responding to Jesus um, to the point where there's reconciliation, marriage, children, like a lot of really neat things happened for him, and this was just one thing along the way. Uh, I think it's worth saying on, on, on this note, right, that the strategy of the enemy primarily in the West for the last century or so, has been to pretend like there is nothing spiritual, that, it's, that there's only the physical. Um, and 
and that's been really effective. Uh, when you go, and, and because of that, I think the enemy tends to be more discreet most of the time uh, in, in the West. And then you get outside of the West and you realize this is, this is, this is not what happens. It's very different. Um, you know, the, the significance of the, of the way the supernatural is affecting and interacting with the natural. Um, but as, as our society goes post-Christian, what's interesting is, you know, the claim that like, oh, the future is, is atheist is pretty much debunked at this point in time. As we go more, more post-Christian, society is going more spiritual, but not necessarily more Christian, right? Um, so we're seeing a huge resurgence of paganism and uh, Wiccan and people inventing their own uh, spirituality and, and all that that's happening here. And so I think we will see a lot more direct and obvious uh, interactions with the demonic here in the States as we kind of continue to slide in that direction. I think we're seeing it already. Um, but I think one of the things that I would want to just add to that conversation is, is the importance of, of realizing um, that these spirits are not stronger than Jesus, uh, that it's not something to, to cower back from. When, when my wife and I were in Southeast Asia doing ministry, uh, uh, you guys got to meet um, uh, the couple that we worked with uh, uh, about a month or so ago, you know, really powerful couple who, who in just such amazing, powerful ways operated in the authority of Jesus in the red light districts and the brothels. I mean, it, it was just, it's just, it's nuts. I mean, I, I've seen, you know, uh, my friend, the woman there, you know, she's, she's like busted down doors to save women and all these kind of things. They walk around these red light districts and these brothels like they own the place. Um, and the Lord has given them authority there. And I, I actually challenged them a couple of times towards the end of our year there because I noticed that they were really, really, um, I don't want to say scared, but I would say overly cautious uh, and overly careful to avoid uh, temples and um, Hindu ceremonies and things like that. And I challenged them. I said, I don't, I, there's nothing more dark going on in those places than in the red light districts. There's nothing more spiritual going on over there than is in there. And I, I think to some extent that, that caution of theirs was like, why mess with something if that's not the field we're called to? But to some extent, I think it was necessary for them to hear like, look, you have that same authority in these places that are exclusively spiritually dark uh, and not just spiritually as well as physically dark. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is really important is, is, is the authority that we have in those places. I mean, the Genesis opens up with a spirit of God hovering over the surface of the, of, of the waters of the chaos in the darkness. And years ago, this was such a formative uh, experience for me. Years ago, David was preaching on uh, the necromancer uh, who conjured up Samuel for Saul. And so it was like, okay, we're getting weird on Sunday. So once a month on Tuesdays, the staff, we used to go out and just try to find people to pray for, tell about Jesus or whatever. And so David was like, hey, so this is the Tuesday. This Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on this weird thing. I'm thinking maybe, like, we can go out and do that. Does anybody want to go with me? And we'll go, like, tell psychics and tarot card readers and spiritualists and pagans about Jesus. And for whatever reason, I said, yeah, that sounds fun, Dave. Let's go. And so I remember we went to a couple of different palm readers or whatever and, and had the interaction that we expected to have, which was like, get out of here. What are you, you know? And we went to maybe third, fourth, I don't remember. We went to this woman and we went into her. her we just, you know, she had a big old psychic sign out in front of her house. And 
So we pulled up. This is so weird. It's actually one I used to pray for uh, every week as a kid, uh, weirdly, because it was on, on the way to our old building on the 20th Street campus. And so we get in there, and I remember thinking that we, we get in there, and David had some just weird line that he was like, hey, like, I know you're trying to bless people by giving them spiritual insight. Could we, I, like, I think we, we hear from the Spirit of God. You know, could we maybe see if, if he wants to speak anything to you? And she was like, get in here. Like, like, yes. Like, and she was just transfixed. And so David starts telling her these things, and she said, Jesus has been coming to me in my sleep and speaking to me on a regular basis through dreams. And he's calling me to give this up. But the thing is, is it's such a tension for me because I have this gift to hear from the spiritual realm and, I'm, and I am using it to bless people, just like David was, was saying. Like, I, like I, I, I'm giving people things that I, I think is helpful. And it's so hard because I know Jesus is calling me to, to stop this, to let go of that, and, and actually to be baptized. And we were like, so we... I mean, the story has kind of a a sad ellipses of an end. You know, we went back three months in a row, I think, uh, and had really good conversation. And the last time she was like, I just, I'm, I've made a decision. I'm just not going to give it up. I just, you know, I can't give that up for Jesus, which was heartbreaking, but it was powerful for me to see, you know, if anybody was an enemy, it would be the people who are engaging with the demonic as a profession, Right. Uh, if anybody was an enemy, if any human was an enemy, it would, be, it would be the psychics, right? But the reality is there is no human who is an enemy. It's the spirits and the principalities that are an enemy. And Jesus is, there is no place too dark. Not even a woman who's given her life over to the demonic as a profession. Not even that woman is beyond the reach of Jesus. Um, and I think that's just so important for us to hear that. Uh, to A, to not be afraid of, of the demonic. To not be afraid of the darkness. We're sons and daughters of the living king, of the one who's conquered death. And so it's so easy, and I see this happen in some churches and, and, and you know, Christian environments where people get so obsessed with the darkness and the demonic and fighting it in spiritual warfare that it actually just seems to, it seems to invite that into their lives, and it seems to discourage them from engaging in it, even though they kind of beat their drums. And so I don't want us to be that kind of people. I want us to be people who know that, look, the enemy's nothing. Jesus is everything. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, I just wanted to uh, make sure that we kind of hear that, uh, that call. I think let's, let's really wrap up with uh, one last thought um, or one last question, really, which is uh, as we're kind of wrapping up, um, what thoughts do you guys want to make sure to get in there to kind of land the plane to bring us home for the conversation for the night? I think just as you were talking about, there's, you know, spiritual realities, things out there. I think one of the things even in conversations in my work and things like that with people that aren't necessarily believers is the reality that there aren't two kinds of people, those who worship and those don't. It's really that everybody worships. It's just, what do you worship? And if you say, I worship nothing, I will say to you, you worship your independence and you'll die alone. Um, but <laughs> n- it's, it's part of the nature of a human that everyone beholds to something. Something's most important in your life, and it's inescapable that that's true. And Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 talk about those who make idols and those who serve them will become like them, uh, deaf, dumb, and blind. Um, another way to put it is um, the idols will dehumanize you because you'll become like them, which is less human, um, and they will be restrictive to life and flourishing and everything else. But when you worship the one true God, you become more like him. 
Um, and he's the only one that if, if you're totally subservient to him, you're totally free. Um, and so we're invited into that. We're invited to pull others into that. Um, and so, as, you know, to pick a fight with the darkness, a lot of times it's not that we have to go looking for it. It comes into our own families and our own lives. I mean, I love David's three-part thing that he always says, the put God's glory on display, engage in society's pain, and build courageous people. And the thing about society's pain, it's not out there. Um, even sitting at an elders retreat, all the elders going around telling what's going on in their life, and all of us are hurt by society's pain. Like, that pain is coming into our lives, and it's how we engage society's pain in our own lives that gets put on display for others. Not that we have it right, but that Jesus is powerful, and that in him we have a resource that allows us to be victorious and to do that ministry of reconciliation um, that's vital in our homes. And it's, it's kind of like in Nehemiah. Everyone was responsible for building the section of wall in front of their house. And really, it starts at home. It starts with being courageous people that are engaging the pain around us, whether it's coming into our kids' lives, into our marriage. How do we engage Jesus and the good news of the gospel and resource that for flourishing in our lives as we worship and follow him? That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think... For me, and it's really along the same lines, that it's what it's been speaking to me right now is, is the whole idea of the darkness um, is a stronghold. Um, it's not just a hold. It's not a weak hold. It's not a barely holding on. But there's, we run into darkness every once in a while that is a real stronghold. And in a couple of the, couple of the darknesses I'm fighting right now, <laughs> Um, in, in, you know, four other people or whatever. Um, I was praying the other day. I was like, God, this is, this is just, this is hard. This is difficult. Why, why does it not seem like something is happening? Because again, you know, there's times where the Lord just does it, you know, it's just immediate and, and the darkness flees and the light comes and, and all of those things. But I was, I was, I was praying, but it was probably a little more complaining than I was compraying, complay, something like that. Um, and and the Lord, who is my Father and merciful and kind and all of those things, basically was like, "Well, it's gonna be a fight, <laughs> you know. Like, it, what what were you expecting? Um, like toughen up, basically. And and so I, I think there's just there's just a, a bit of that where. Um, you know, Jesus promised that one day there will be, there will be no more darkness. Um, and until he comes and, and does away with it in that way, he, he has saw, seen fit to, to let us be the carriers of light and the ones who war with the darkness, you know, with his spirit and by his strength and in his way. But, um, but every once in a while you run into some str real strongholds and um, my aunt actually was telling me, um, she, she was going to tell me more in person, but she was just alluding to my grandmother and, and, the, and the praying that she did for my father, who um, ended up being an awesome man of God in, in my life. But um, he, he, didn't, he wasn't that way all the time. <laughs> and so she just talks about him, uh, my, my grand, the power and the persistence and, and the, the fighting that my grandmother did in prayer, primarily, 
um, that were, was able to see the darkness actually not take over my dad in that way. And, and, and I just, you know, made me think about all the stories of all the moms out there, right? The moms who are just like laying it down, picking that fight with the darkness on their knees and hopefully dads as well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways to pick a fight with the darkness. That's why I tried to bring up like foster care. That's, that's a way that we can pick a fight because there's darkness that has crashed into these families' lives and that darkness is hanging over the heads of these children and the children didn't really even do anything to deserve it. So we can engage, we can step in and say, hey, we're going to be a covering for you so that all the hell that's supposed to come you, it's going to hit us first. And, uh, and it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard, um, and it takes time. Sometimes it takes maybe decades, maybe a lifetime, um, but, but that's the call, is that we're supposed to step in, we're supposed to do what Jesus did, and, uh, and pick a fight with the darkness like that. I would just add to that last thought of David's, you know, and, and winds don't always look like we want them to. You know, I, uh, I think we want to see a, a full life transformation when, when we reach in and fight the darkness and try to pull someone out, try to let Jesus pull someone out. But I'm still waiting for a full life transformation myself, you know. And I remember, uh, um, I remember when we were, you know, doing anti-trafficking ministry, there was a woman who had wanted to be baptized. Um, and we were all so excited, and we had a date and a really cool little kind of private beach all picked out, and we were going to do it. Um, and the day before, she was like, I, but the thing is, I'm still stuck in this job. I can't get baptized when I'm still, you know, working on the streets. Um, and it, and our, our hearts broke, because I think we all felt really clearly that Jesus was saying, that's not true. Which sounds crazy and messy, and I'm like, "Ooh, like I, you know, all I know is when Jesus says, you go for it, you know." But in her heart, it was like, you know, it's I, I got to get clean and come to Jesus, not come to Jesus and let Him get me clean. Yeah. And um, and so we have wins, and I'm like, I think what I one of the things I learned from that is like, you know, we want to see these women come out of trafficking and come to Jesus and turn their life around and and get healthy and whole and. Maybe someday meet a, a man of God and have a have a have a, a healthy family and pass something on beautiful to their grandchildren. But if they stay in that work, if they stay in prostitution for the rest of their life, and they meet Jesus, and Jesus and the Spirit of God hovers over the darkness with them, that's still a pretty big win too. It, I, we want so much more win than that. But that's that's the only one that really matters. And Jesus, Jesus is going to bring them into eternity and the resurrection in that scenario. And they're going to have a fully restored life then. So sometimes, you know, we, we dive into the darkness and we don't see the win the way we wanted to in our lifetime. But Jesus is coming back and he's bringing full resurrection life uh, for those who, who know him when he does. So I think that's probably a pretty good, um, pretty good spot to, to wrap up the night. Um, well, let me throw a little oh, Jan Tiranowski in there real quick. Go for it. This is one of my favorite quotes. Dan reminds me of how much I love it all the time, which is funny. Um, but Jan Tiranowski was a cobbler in Poland, and, uh, and he is said to have been a marvelous light um, that was hidden at a place where darkness usually reigns. 
And uh, the person that said that about him was Pope John Paul. Um, and he said that he was, you know, just a, a cobbler in, in his town that used to take these, these boys in and kind of just show them the way of Jesus, show them the way of love. And, and, uh, and I just love that so much. And that's what, that's, that's what we need. Pick and fight with our, it's, it's just being a marvelous light hidden at a, at a depth where darkness usually reigns. That's, that's the call of believers. That's what Jesus did for all of us. And that's what we're called to do too. Amen. Um, Dan, would you pray for us really quick? Sure. Then I'll wrap this up. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you love us, that you care for us, Lord, and that you sent your son uh, to redeem and save the lost. And Lord, that you've invited us into what you're doing, Lord. And we just ask that you would open our eyes um, to see the profound and the simple ways, Lord, that it could be as simple as giving a cup of cold water uh, to a little one, Lord, that it doesn't go unnoticed or unforgotten and that it's not a proclamation of who it is that's in charge in this world. And I just pray that as we go out, Lord, that you give us simple, practical ways, Lord, that you would show uh, all of us, Lord, ways that you're engaging through us, Lord, and that you'd invite us into uh, things that you have for us and for others, Lord, that we would follow your Holy Spirit into the places you're leading us, Lord, that you would make us lights, Lord, like a city on a hill or at the bottom of the world where darkness normally reigns, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your power, your goodness. I ask for your blessing on everyone here, Lord. I just pray that you'd strengthen uh, everyone's hands as they go out uh, and engage in your work. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Amen. thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dan.